This morning, we're going to be back in John chapter 11. Uh, we are going to do something this morning that I don't do very often, and that is take a second pass over something I've already covered. Now, a couple of cases that I've done this in the past, it's been because I felt like it was a total bomb, and the text deserved something better than what I had given it, so I wanted to take a second swing at it. This one I actually had a little more foresight on, and I realized last week when I was preparing to talk about Lazarus that this story is the climax of the book so far, this ancient book about Jesus and what he taught and what he did, and that the story is long enough and full of enough rich details that it would be unwise to try to cram it all into one sermon. So what I decided was that we would talk about the story, follow its twists and turns, unpack its details together. Last week, that's what we did. That's, all, that's available online if you weren't here last week. I'd encourage you to go and listen to it, not because it was this awesome sermon, but because it will help you understand what I'm about to say today. And if you leave with any sort of lingering questions about where I'm getting what I'm getting for today, hopefully last week's sermon will answer those. Because what I plan to do today is not be tied so closely to the twists and turns of the text. What I want to do today is do what I would have done last week if I'd had two hours to preach the sermon. And that is apply the details that I drew out of the passage from last week. I want to use today not to be wed to all of the details, but to drive those details into you. And we'll pray that God will make it clear to you that I'm not making this stuff up from thin air, that it's there, that the richness of this text could could occupy us for week after week if we would let it. And I'll leave you to go and listen to the first part last week. Now, I know I'm on dangerous ground to try to unpack a story like this one in the way that I plan to do today. One of my favorite story writers is a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she's a Catholic writer who, who wrote about the South. She made my grandparents make sense to me, sort of come to life for me. Uh, and there's, she's got this amazing collection of letters where she's, where she's corresponding with people who've read her work and trying to explain her work to them. And there's this one letter, probably my favorite letter that, that are in her collection, where she's writing to this English class, a high school English class. And they've written a letter to her, giving her their class's interpretation of one of her stories. Wanting to know what she thinks. Did we get it right? How did we do? And her response to them is not to go there. It's actually pretty funny and dismissive and and a little bit uh, condescending. Um, What she said, but the the gist of it, and and what what really sticks out to me, she says this, and all of you who've had literary criticism or whatever in high school or in college are going to love this, I think. She says, if teachers are in the habit of approaching a story as if it were a research problem, for which any answer is believable so long as it's not obvious, then I think students will never learn to enjoy fiction. What she's getting at is the story's got to stand on its own. The story possesses a kind of meaning that just unfolds as you think about it and won't be captured in any one short paragraph summary. What she's warning us against is the danger of picking things apart because of picking stories apart in particular, because sometimes you can lock in on one thing that that story means and miss out on the expansiveness of its meaning. I want to avoid doing that today in picking apart the story of Lazarus. It's an amazing story, just as a story. And every time I go to it, I get new insight from it. What I don't want to do today is try to exhaust its meaning. What I do want to do, though, is try to make sure some of its meaning comes out more clearly for you than it might have just walking through its details. And I think Flannery O'Connor notwithstanding that I'm justified in trying to do this because of what John wanted to do with this story. This is something we've said over and over. I want to say it one more time at least. When John tells stories about Jesus' miraculous power, he's not just trying to wow you. 
What he's trying to do is give you what he calls a sign. He chooses which specific miraculous episodes to include in his story based on the fact that these episodes capture almost like a parable or a symbol, something about the nature of Jesus' work. That if you look at this parable and really give yourself to it, you'll understand him better than you would have otherwise. Not just understand that he has power to bring back the dead or turn a few loaves of bread into a meal for 5,000, but that in these things, he's pointing you to what he came to do and to offer to all who trust in him. This is the last sign, the most important sign, the one through which we get the most clear sense of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I think John wants us picking it apart and trying to see what the symbolism is, is meant to communicate to us. So that's what we're going to do today. In the passage that we read carefully and unpacked together last week, what we saw was Jesus come face to face with our greatest enemy. He came face to face with death itself. He took it on and he conquered. And in his conquering of the death of one of his friends, what we're pointed ahead to is the fact that Jesus came primarily to take on death and all of its power for us and to do away with its power over anyone who trusts in him. That's the point, the simple point of the story. I want to make sure that we seep ourselves in it today, learn to love it, because seeing Jesus take on death is the key to seeing why he matters. I want to do this in two big steps today. I want us to see Jesus in light of death, That's the main thing that John emphasizes in the way he tells his story. If you want to see Jesus, you've got to look at death first to understand him. You've got to see Jesus in light of what he came to solve. But then we want to flip it and look at death in light of Jesus. If Jesus is who he claims to be, how does that change how all of us look ahead to and live in light of our greatest problem, which is the fact we'll die? That's where we're headed. I hope it'll make some sense. What I want to do is, is rather than reread the entire story, what I want to do is read the central section where Jesus talks about the significance of what he's come to do. This is in verses 17 to 27. And I'm going to ask you, in honor of God's word, if you would, please stand with me as I read these verses from John chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Seeing Jesus in light of death, that's the main point that John wants to make in this story. 
I want to quickly recap the most surprising twist that we tried to highlight in our telling of this story last week. What we, where the scene begins, the scene is set with Jesus being told about the mortal illness of one that he loved. And over and over again, that point is emphasized, that Jesus loved them, that his relationship to this man and to this man's family was not like his relationship to other friends or something intimate about it. He loved them, we're told, over and over again. And then what we're told is that because he loved them, precisely because he loved his friends, he decided not to save him from death. Verse 6 of chapter 11 says that just after verse 5 has said that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he didn't put on a Superman cape. He didn't use his magical powers of transportation, just plop himself right down next to Lazarus. He didn't even do what he'd done for other people, which is speak a word that heals them from a distance. No, what Jesus did was wait. He stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved this man and his family, he did nothing. Because he loved them, he let them feel the full weight of death's sting. Why? Consistent answer that we tried to tease out last week. The thing that's mentioned in verse 4 and again in verse 15 and then again in verses 40 to 42 is that to see Jesus, to believe on him and truly take what he is and offers into yourself so that it changes who you are and gives you life, to get there with Jesus, you've got to see him in the light of death. The reason he let the death happen is for the glory of God, verse 4 says, so that the Son may be glorified through it. The reason Jesus is glad when he hears that Lazarus has, not desi- has died and that he wasn't there, verse 15, is that so you may believe. And then again in verses 40 to 42, he let this thing go down on behalf of those who would be watching so that when they see what he planned to do, they would know and would believe in him. So what we said was, the most loving thing Jesus could do is not protect his friends from pain. That's what we would think. The most loving thing he could do is make sure they believe. And if you want to believe in Jesus, if you want to trust in him, actually understand and rest on him, then the key, according to this story, is you have got to see him in light of death. You can't be preserved from the sting of losing the ones that you love or losing your own life if you want to believe in Jesus. So why is that? Why is it that we've got to taste death to experience its awful reality firsthand before we can really see Jesus? I think the short answer is that that seeing Jesus in light of death helps to make some very abstract things more concrete for us. It helps to make things that the Bible talks about when it talks about Jesus that can stay in our minds as ideas that we struggle to understand, much less internalize. It can take some of those things and make them concrete so that we can see and understand them, so we can touch them and taste them. I'm going to give you three, of the, three examples. Three things that I think you have to understand to understand the gospel, that seeing death helps you understand. Here's the first one. By seeing death, 
tasting of its awful reality, we're able to see the true depth of our need. That's the first thing. It's seeing death that helps us see the true depth of our need. What do you think you need? I wonder. I'm saying, be honest, too. All right, don't give me the churchy answer. What do you think you need? And, and I want to know how you would have defined that an hour ago or when you were trying to get ready to come here this morning. I want to know what it is that's taking up your mental space, what it is that you're drifting to in your mind while you're trying to listen to me. It's probably something you hope to have in the near future, right? Maybe a couple extra hours of sleep. Maybe a new outfit, a car, a new house. Maybe it's something in the relationships category. Maybe there's a a group of friends that you've recognized at school as a new student, and you really, really want to be part of it. Maybe you want to be married or to have children. Could be that it's in the accomplishment category. You've got to get that project finished. You have to get that grant proposal turned in. If you could just finish this rotation, then life would be better, right? What is it? I don't know. But probably, whatever your sense of need is, is very of the moment, right? We're always tempted to overplay the significance of these, of these sorts of things. We're always tempted to, to overplay how bad off our life is without this thing that we need. And we're tempted to overplay how great our life would be if we just had fill in the blank. Jesus' hearers weren't all that different. Up to this point in John's story, it's a theme that we've seen over and over again. People flocking to Jesus in huge crowds, but for the wrong reasons. They love the idea that he could feed them, could take away from them the need to draw water from a well or to prepare lunch for themselves for a day by the lake. They love the prospect of a political ruler who they could attach themselves to quickly, maybe be on the ground floor of the new administration. They love the idea that he could heal them. Those who were dominated in their thinking by physical problems wanted healing. Who can blame them? But what we've seen also over and over again is that when people come to Jesus for all these various reasons, even when he gives them something good that day, he always points them back to what he says they really need. And what they really need is not something more out of this life. What they really need is a life that won't die. What he tells them over and over again is that what they need and what he came to give them is eternal life. That's his phrase. Comes up all through what we've seen so far in John. Eternal life. Problem is, that's not what they felt they needed. And half the time, maybe most of the time, maybe for some of us, almost all the time, it's not what we feel like we need either. Jesus ultimately doesn't promise us the new house or the new car or the spouse or the children that we want. He doesn't promise us a fulfilling or successful career. These things that are so real, so present and concrete in our minds are not the things Jesus came to promise us. So the deck is stacked against us tasting, really savoring what it is that he brings, seeing why he's so valuable. So how do you get to the place where you taste your need for what Jesus came to offer? You look at death. That's how you get there. That's what Jesus is doing for his friends here. Death puts all of these other needs in perspective. 
one, helpful, one of the most helpful ways I've seen of, of thinking about death as a problem, of how to get our minds around what it actually is and what it does to us, is to think about death as cutting us off from all the things that we love. Death is to, to die is to be severed in your relationship to the things that you love. Not just people, people of course, but also the beauties of the world. and Whatever it is that you love, death ends it, right? Death is not just the end to a physical body. It isn't just a heart that stops beating or lungs that stop breathing. Any more than we would say to live is to have a heart that beats and lungs that breathe. That's not what we say. That's not what we mean when we say, when we think of life. We think of what it is that fills life, what gives it joy and purpose and meaning. Death is the end to all that gives life joy, purpose, and meaning. Death separates parents from children. How many of you have known that? have seen your relationship to your parents cut off by death. Death separates husbands and wives. It separates lifelong friends. Death separates us from the beauties of fall and spring. All of us will have a last fall season, a last time that we see what it is for these maple trees to come to life in their orange and yellow and red. All of us will have one last time of seeing the beauties of tulips in full bloom. Death cuts us off from music, from the exhilarating experience of hearing something truly beautiful for the first time. Cuts us off from good books that cause our minds to think and turn, that help us to see things in new ways. It cuts us off from the wonderful reality of delicious food. I will have my last bite of key lime pie one day, and death will cut me off from it. It cuts us off from work, from the things that we love to do, from the meaning and purpose God intended for us to get from bringing order to the world that he made, filling it with good things. Death cuts off what we love. It's an assault on beauty, on love, on friendship and productivity. It even erases those very things that this morning you probably thought of as your biggest need. And that's why Jesus wants his beloved, this family that he loves, to see it for what it is, to taste it, to feel it despite the pain. Because he knew until they did, They'd spin their wheels looking for their next meal and never think about why it is they really need Jesus. The first reason that we got to see death to see Jesus is that it shows us the true depth of our need. There's a second one. This one's a flip side of that first reason. It shows us the sweetness of Jesus' promises. I'm going to say kind of the same thing in a little bit of a different way. Death shows us how deep our true needs go. It clarifies our our desperate condition, but looking at it, facing it head on, fully grasping what it does to us and to, to what we love helps us to see and to savor the sweetness of Jesus' promise that we don't have to die. How many of you have trouble visualizing eternal life? How many of you are stuck thinking about heaven as a world of clouds and golden streets and celestial shores and chubby little angels playing harps, right? 
How many of you are stuck in that realm where eternal life is something distant and abstract and really tough to long for? You know, in your gut, to long for it the way I long for the beginning of football season, right? That sort of just hunger. It's hard to get our minds around these details about eternal life until we recognize what death actually does. If death, in its essence, is separating us from all that makes life beautiful, all that makes it worth living, from God and the trickle-down effect of all that he gives us, then eternal life would be a life in which we never have to know what loss is. We never have any joy that's incomplete. We never have to worry about the end to the piece of pie, the end to the vacation, the end to the friendship or the marriage or the joys of having toddlers. Eternal life will be a life in which God restores to us and magnifies for us everything we've ever enjoyed about this world. What do you love? It's a gift from God. Chances are you distort it. Chances are that's one of the reasons it lets you down. But it's a gift from God. And one day, if you trust in Jesus, with eternal life, you'll get to enjoy it on a level that you never even thought possible. Because it will be, it will be unclouded by the shroud of death. Finally, third thing, that seeing death in order to see Jesus why it's so important to see death before we can see Jesus is that death shows us the person that we can trust to deliver us. This is where Jesus goes, to get back into the details of the text, this is where Jesus goes with Martha in the, in the section that I read. Looking at death is the key to latching on to the only person who can deliver us from it. Jesus here is not talking about some sort of abstract feel-good hope that everything will work out one day and we'll be reunited with everyone that we love and somehow, some way, I just know things are going to come out okay in the end. It's not that sort of vague talk that you sometimes hear in popular novels or, or, or sort of pop psychology or in some of the movies or shows that you might have watched. And it's not the, that, that sort of talk. It's not the sort of talk that ever will really comfort anyone who seriously thinks about death. When you look at death... It brings into focus the fact that you need something more than vague and abstract hope that everything's going to work out okay in the end. You need to know why you can trust who you can trust to do something concrete about the problem of death. That seems to be what Jesus is doing with Martha. Martha says to him that if he'd been here, he could have healed him. She knew that he had the power to heal people from disease. Jesus redirects her from this focus on what God can give to himself, come as God in the flesh. He tells Martha, your brother's going to rise again. Martha says, yeah, I know. In the resurrection, on the last day, he'll rise again. still hurts. Jesus says, no, no, you're missing the point. It's not some sort of vague, abstract, one of these days all things will be made well by and by. I am the resurrection and the life. I am here. I give life to those who believe in me. Whoever believes in me, though they die, they'll live. And whoever believes in me and lives in me, they will never see death. I am the one who delivers. Now, here Jesus is just pointing. He's using a sign, right? He's pointing towards what's going to happen at the end of the book. You can't get it all from right here, 
But this story sets in motion Jesus' explanation through what he does for how he can make this promise to us, how he can back up what he says he can do here. It is raising Lazarus from the dead that sets Jesus finally into conflict with the religious leaders who know anybody who can do that cannot be allowed to survive. It's after Lazarus' resurrection that they huddle up together and decide, this guy has got to go. Here's how we'll do it. Jesus knows that. Surely that's weighing on him. Even as he approaches the tomb to give life to Lazarus, he he knows that in order to give Lazarus life, he's going to have to lose his own. The only way he can give life to this friend or to anyone else who will ever trust in him is if he goes to the grave. The grave is exactly where he's headed. And it is in his death and in its perfect accounting of every sin that any of us has ever done that Jesus gains the right to rise again. Where Jesus uses up all of death's power once and for all. This is a picture of what Jesus has to do, not just Lazarus. Jesus has to go in the grave so that Jesus can come out of the grave, so that Jesus can give life to anyone who believes. Look at him. Before you see death, this is the main point here, friends. Before you see death as your main problem, then you're liable to spin your wheels in life looking for a solution to what you think is your problem in all sorts of the wrong places. Until you see death as as your main problem, You won't latch on to Jesus as the only one who has the power to solve it. Is Christianity an inclusive or an exclusive religion? It's a question that many of us have to wrestle with at one point or another. This passage is beautifully inclusive. Whoever, John says, whoever believes in me, come on and I'll give you life. That's as inclusive as you can possibly be. But friends, it's also necessarily exclusive in the sense that it insists there is only one person who has the power to deliver us from what we most need delivering from. And that is Jesus. Because Jesus, and only Jesus, took on death for us. Jesus, and only Jesus, has ever overcome its power. And therefore, Jesus, and only Jesus, can give freedom from death to anyone who turns to him. So if you're seeking this morning, if you're evaluating whether or not Jesus is for you, especially if you're considering whether or not to sort of enfold Jesus into a portfolio of religious practices or beliefs that you already have, I want to encourage you, friends, to sort of reframe your portfolio in light of the problem of death. Because what you need in order to get free of this cloud that hangs over you is not some teaching that's going to enlighten you some inspiration that's going to help you to live in a way that's better for other people. What you need is not even community to come around you and give you a sense of belonging. You need those things, but those things are not what you need most. Those things you can get in most major world religions. What you can only get in Jesus is someone who has conquered the power of the grave. I would encourage you to focus here. There is good evidence that Jesus really did die and really did come back. Be happy to talk about that evidence with you if it would help you. And if he is alive, he has the right to command our lives. I want to talk to you as believers too this morning, though. Those of you who are 
here holding on to faith in Jesus. Jesus has talked earlier in John about the need to eat and drink his flesh as the key to eternal life. It's this bizarre language, right? What we saw, though, was that he was using it synonymously with belief. To eat and drink him is to believe in him. To eat and drink him is to take the truth of who Jesus is and put it inside yourself so that it starts to control how you feel, how you think, how you relate to everything outside of you. You want to take Jesus into you. And Jesus here is using the same language. He's saying, I let death happen to my friends so that you could believe, so that you could eat my flesh and drink my blood, so that you could get me and all that I offer you inside of yourself so that it becomes your operating system. Death, friends, and seeing it, tasting it, living in light of it is the key to a worshipful and satisfying and restful belief in Jesus. There's this, uh, there's this study we've done before here at Trinity in a couple different contexts called the Gospel-Centered Life. It's got this great chart in it about how to come to a deeper appreciation for Jesus' death for us. The chart goes something like this, where this line represents God's holiness. This line represents our sin. And Christian growth is coming to understand your sin more clearly and understand God's holiness more clearly. And the more you grow, the more you realize the gap between you is unbridgeable. And as long as Jesus is your only bridge, the more you understand God's holiness, the more you understand your sin, the bigger Jesus becomes the more beautiful and glorious and irreplaceable he becomes. I think we ought to write a similar chart for the role of death in helping us to appreciate the promise of eternal life. Friends, I think it's as your understanding of what death is, of how horrible it is, of what it cuts you off from, the more you see it and taste it, the more this line goes this way. And the more you see the beauty in Jesus' promise to give you eternal life, the more those things grow, the bigger Jesus becomes. The more you love him, the more you taste of him and savor him. Here's the last thing that I'll say on this point. Actually, I'm just going to read you something from a book I recently found. It's maybe 20, 25 years old now. It's by a guy named Walt Wangerin. He's made his name as a fiction writer. Really great writer. Christian, uh, also, uh, a Christian writer is also a pastor, Lutheran pastor. He wrote this book about mourning and how God turns mourning to dancing. And it's all about death and how to live in light of it. And here's what he says. I'm going to read this to you before we move on. If you think you can't endure the knowledge that death hazards every good relationship, daily striking things asunder, I would not argue, nor would I call you weak. Such knowledge is intolerable. That's why the world simply ducks it, deluding itself, pretending by all means from hedonism to folksy forms of philosophy to vague spirituality that death is no horror, that death is not. But you, you have a present Savior with whom to meet and wrestle a present death. Surely in such company you need not ignore this enemy as the fearful world does. And the more you recognize death around you, the sweeter will seem the love of the Lord. You will know him better. You will realize the pragmatic and immediate power of his salvation. For wherever death is, there can also be the manifestation of his glorious victory. And you, child, 
you may stride with freedom even through difficulties, grief and the hard road, mourning and bereavement. If the gospel, listen to this, friends. Don't miss this. This is what I've been trying to get at. If the gospel, Wangren continues, seems irrelevant to our daily lives, that is our fault, not the gospel's. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air, and Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten, whereas he can be our necessary ally, an immediate, continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior. Friends, we've got to see Jesus in light of death, or we won't see him at all. When we've seen Jesus in light of death, then we get to see death, our great enemy, in light of Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. Very quickly, I want to point you towards what it would mean to see death in light of Jesus, the death of our loved ones and our own death in light of Jesus. Three attitudes or or expressions in our hearts towards death that we'll take on if we do it in light of Jesus and what he offers us. Here's the first one. We'll face death with grief. I'm going to go back to something I hammered last week. Your confidence in the promises of God to you to give you eternal life, they do not hinge on your ability to encounter everything you encounter in your life with a sort of steely resolve not to let it get to you. That isn't what it looks like to claim God's promises to you with hope and faith. Death is a horrible reality, and it is still, it is still this moment real. Faith in God's promises and confidence in Jesus' resurrection does not mean that you can't express sorrow for death. Like the only Christian response is to say something like, oh, they're in a better place. Or we'll see him again by and by. To respond that way to death is to respond to death differently than Jesus. I unpacked this last week. I don't want to do it all again this week. Listen to it from last week if you want to hear more about this. But one of the most striking things about the story is that Jesus grieves. He's the one who made sure Lazarus would die. He's the one who had the power to stop it. He chooses not to. But then when he comes, knowing that he secured his death, knowing that in minutes he would give him new life, that that wasn't hanging in the balance. Still, when Jesus sees the pain that death has caused his friends, he weeps. His heart is broken. Death is awful, and we should grieve all of its ugly effects. In fact, grieving for death is a way of honoring the world that we've been promised. Our grief over this challenge to the world God has promised us is a way of saying, give me this, Father. Give me this world. I can't tolerate the world I live in. Grief is entirely appropriate. But grief cannot be the only way in which we confront death if we do so in light of Jesus. There is another attitude that will shape our outlook, and that is hope. The second one is hope. We grieve, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4. We do mourn, but not as those who have no hope. What is hope? 
but a confidence that my life will be defined by something other than what I experience right now. Hope looks ahead to a reality that is different from the one I'm in and says, that reality defines me, not this one. So in light of Jesus and his promise to give life to anyone who believes in him, when you confront death, you do it with eyes open. You grieve through it. You mourn over its effects. But you say, in faith, those effects are not the end. They do not define my life. For one has come for me who has borne my sorrows. He's more than just an empathizing counselor. He is that, but much more. He is the one who carries our sorrows, who every grief has borne, who has taken them for his own so that he can do away with them forever. Hope latches on to what Jesus says in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, present reality, death is still real, still a problem, but though he die, yet shall he live. Hope lives in and for the yet. Hope lives a life defined by the yet. Finally, in light of Jesus, we see death with faith. Faith is not bravado. It is not a macho man mentality. It is not a nothing can touch me resolve to take what comes and know that you can still stand at the end. That's not what faith is. Faith is not a rest in our ability. Faith is not accepting any delusion about the scale of the threat. Faith is simply trusting that no matter how great the threat is, no matter how weak I am before it, no matter how helpless I am, at stopping what's coming for me. Jesus, Jesus can save me. Faith is latching on to him. For doubters in particular, death can hold a special terror. Not all of God's children are hopeful. And none of us are hopeful all the time. And maybe you, like me, have sometimes been afraid that when the time for your death comes, your faith will evaporate and you'll enter it wondering if Jesus will be there for you on the other side. And what I want to encourage you with this morning, friends, is that 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 can still be faith. Because the faith that saves is not a faith that knows no threat whatsoever, that's 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 never moved around by winds of change and especially the winds of death. Faith is a, is, is a simple holding on to Jesus as the one who holds you. I want to close with a scene that I love from the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory of the Christian life uh, written hundreds of years ago by a Puritan pastor. Still amazingly timely and encouraging to, those, to all of us who are walking the Christian journey. Christian is the central character. He and his buddy Hopeful have just made it through an entire life full of Christian wrestling with the things around them that happened to them. And they reach the last obstacle on their journey. They can see the celestial city, the new heavens and the new earth, the world free of sorrow and pain and death. 
but there's something in between them and that city. There's a river. It's a deep one. It flows fast. There's no bridge. They have to go through it. Hopeful launches right in. He finds his footing, and the footing holds. He starts out across the river, and he's okay. He knows that the king will be waiting for him on the other side, but Christian, Christian is not that way. Christian steps into the river, and he can't find the bottom. The water washes all over his head. He's bobbing up and down, fighting for breath, wondering if maybe up until now he's just been deluding himself. Bunyan wrote that a great darkness and a horror fell upon him so he couldn't see before him. He lost his senses so that he couldn't remember or talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he'd met with in the way of his pilgrimage. All all of his thinking was defined by a horror of mind, hearty fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance at the gate. All he could see was that he, all he could see and think about were the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. His faith went away when he entered into death. But hopeful, his friend calls out to him. These troubles, hopeful says to Christian, and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you'll call to mind that which heretofore you've received of his goodness. And live upon him in your distresses. Hopeful added this word. Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian broke out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou pass through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When you face death in life, Jesus... Your faith and its security isn't the point. Jesus and his power hold you and will never let you go. Father, all of us want to live towards our death in this way, in a way that helps us to love and believe in Jesus and rest in his promises to us. And so what we ask for from you is an ability to see more clearly the promise you've made to us than the reality we live in now. We've got that choice, all of us, to define, have our lives defined by what we lack now, by the threats we face now, or defined by your great promises to us. And we want to live for and from your promises. So help us, Father. Help us to see, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.